Welcome to the COVID Lexington podcast, timely conversations highlighting local community leaders and experts to keep you informed during the COVID-19 era. We plan to present insights to help you thrive and opportunities to help your neighbors and communities, all brought to you from a safe social distance from our homes across Lexington, Kentucky. Hello, Lexington. This is Cameron Hamilton uh, back with uh, another episode of the COVID Lexington podcast. I'm very excited. I have a, a new teammate uh, helping me interview uh, someone that they work with, and that's Katrina Howard. Uh, so Katrina, tell me where you work and uh, who do we have with us today? Good afternoon, Cameron. Um, thank you for inviting us to be here today. Uh, my name is Katrina Howard. I'm the Compliance Facilities Officer, and uh, I am here with Dr. Craig Humbaugh. Dr. Humbaugh and I work for the Lexington Fayette County Health Department. I have worked with Dr. Humbaugh since June of 2016. Um, and so he has been our leader, our commissioner since then, kind of guiding uh, the mission and vision of the health department as we help Lexington be well. But right now, I think our important role is that he has been um, our leader through this pandemic and our response to COVID-19. And so I think this was could be a great opportunity for Dr. Humball to be able to not only share what the health department's role is part of the response to COVID-19, but also be able to share some information to the general Lexington community from that trusted and valued partner, that resource that a lot of people look to, and hopefully answer some questions that people are wanting to know, but maybe also spurn a little bit more discussion. Yeah, and I'm so excited because I know you all have your board meetings, but I'm coming uh, from this as kind of a layman citizen's perspective. Uh, so I'm not a doctor, uh, and I'm, I'm sure that uh, Dr. Humbaugh can, can talk circles around me with the epidemiology and everything like that, but just trying to get some, some basic understanding of what's going on for the, for the citizens around town. So uh, what, what have you all been doing at the health department, uh, Dr. Humbaugh, for the last few weeks? Well, first of all, Cameron, it's uh, good to be with you all and uh, good to talk to the folks in Lexington. Uh, it has been, uh, you know, it's a very, very busy time here at the health department. And uh, I don't think any of us could imagine how the community and the health department have been transformed in the last two months uh, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, Katrina and I were talking um, just this week about uh, the way that we do business is going to be forever transformed by this, uh, the way we do business here at the health department. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. So what, uh, what type of activities are you all focusing on uh, on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, right. That, that well, uh, so that's a great question. And so the way we are structured to deal with the pandemic as the, lead health agency here in Lexington is to, uh, oops, Katrina is uh, fixing my screen. I no, think. I am. <laughs> I, I left him a note to not stop talking. I'm actually out closing out of my email so you all don't have a bunch of things. <laughs> Okay, good. <laughs> uh, so we have structured using the incident command system, which is a pretty common way to structure handling any type of an emergency. Um, but along with that, and we can maybe get into this as well, we have to look at ourselves as a business. And we also had to decide what 
core essential functions that we needed to continue to provide to citizens of Lexington um, while we are responding to the COVID-19 right. pandemic and trying to save lives um, in that regard. So uh, they're kind of two different things and they're running simultaneously uh, because we are the health authority. But in terms of the, the, the pandemic itself, we structure ourselves with the incident command system. We have an incident commander. We have daily meetings. We've gotten into kind of a rhythm uh, where we have uh, daily exchanges of information with the state health department, with um, the partners in the community, with the mayor's office, with our healthcare community partners, um, and others, so, and with the media as well. So, um, you know, one of the things that we've been focused on is um, the whole message of social uh, distancing, or I like to call it physical distancing, because I think we can be physically apart from each other, but we can also be socially connected because that's, that's very nice I like that. that we have right yeah. so uh, that's I think important um, as we move forward um, but that's probably my main message to Lexington is hey you've you've been doing a great job so far and uh, we need you to keep it up and now is not the time to let the pedal off the brake so um, that has been great. I think I, we've seen the community come together and rally around um, that message, I think, uh, as well as hand washing and frequent cleaning of surfaces, all of which are really important in this particular outbreak. Yeah, we're, we're recording this on Friday, April 17th. If we, <laughs> uh, if we don't, uh, depend on when people are listening to it, I think it's been impressive how people have kind of rallied around those messages and now it's time for us to test our stamina to stick <laughs> stick to it and so right yeah, yeah agreed so <clears throat> can you just talk about physical distancing and and you know from the you know medical standpoint how is that important and what is that accomplishing yeah so let's go back maybe to the and talk about this virus in general. So uh, we are, uh, we like to say that we're, we're flying the plane as we build it or building the plane as we fly it um, because this is a brand new virus the world had never seen before, you know, just a few, maybe four months ago or so. It emerged late in 2019 uh, in China and uh, now we're experiencing pandemic and pandemic simply means that it's a worldwide epidemic in that the sense that no one is immune to this new virus. The problem with having a new virus though is that we don't know everything that we we're learning about the virus as people are getting infected and that is um, a very very much a challenge to all of us who are in healthcare and in public health. Um, and for the general public as well as you know they think about it uh, and what we what we believe is happening with the science that we have and we, again I'll probably say this again but we're trying to make the best decisions that we can based on the available science and the available data but what we believe is is occurring is that this particular virus COVID-19 virus is transmitted much like influenza or any other respiratory illness. And that is the primary way that you get it is that somebody who's sick or about to be sick um, is 
uh, coughing or sneezing, and then they are expelling tiny microscopic droplets that you can't see and they can't see that contain the virus. And then you as a susceptible person, remember everybody in the world is susceptible because mm -hmm. our bodies have never encountered this virus before. We breathe that in and that's how we become exposed or infected to the with the, with the virus. A secondary way that people can get infected um, is that they touch a service, surface that's been contaminated with virus. So if I'm infected and I sneeze on a surface and then somebody else comes along and they're susceptible and they touch that area and then with their unwashed hands, they can inoculate themselves essentially by touching their mouth or their eyes or their nose. We all touch our face a lot more, involuntarily, a lot more than we realize every day. Um, so that's why this whole physical distancing um, measure is so very important because we believe that these tiny little droplets are only traveling six feet or less from the person who's expelling them. And so if we're, even if somebody is asymptomatic, if we're six feet away and they're incubating, then we can be far enough away that we're not going to be breathing in that that virus and potentially being exposed. So I'm I'm hoping that makes sense in yeah. a case about why this physical distancing principle is so important. Yeah, and one thing I picked up on when you were speaking just now was that you said someone who is sick or about to be sick, mm -hmm. and I think that that's one of the big challenges is yeah. people who are shedding virus aren't walking around with a a bullseye on them that says I'm the I'm the sick person. So can you tell me uh, what's your understanding right now of of kind of the the course of the illness and and when you might be um, potentially infecting other people as you understand today? Right, right. Yeah. No, it's a great question. So first of all, we think that the incubation period is up to 14 days. What do we mean by the incubation period? That's the time when you breathe in the virus, you're exposed to the virus, it enters your body in the time that you start to develop symptoms, okay? That period is somewhere between zero and 14 days. After if 14 days later that you haven't gotten, you haven't been infected, then you're out of the, you're out of the woods, so to speak. Um, so I think you're asking about, um, specifically who can transmit the virus and I think that and at what stage can you transmit the virus and that's kind of the 64 million dollar question here because um, it's been what's it's one of the main reasons that this has been such a public health challenge is the good news is that 80 percent of the people who've been infected develop mild or maybe even no symptoms and yet those people can still transmit disease to the 20% of people who have more severe illness that have to go to the hospital or need higher levels of care and, and can even have life-threatening illness. And we've seen, unfortunately, we've had seven, seven Lexingtonians that have died from this, from this disease, and we certainly mourn, mourn those losses. Um, and that's what public health is trying to do is try to reduce or slow the spread of illness so that we can 
as a healthcare system, take care of those who are the sickest and provide them with the best care um, that many of them do need to be, or some of them need to be ventilated and they need uh, intensive unit care at our um, most acute care facilities here in town. Right, yeah, it seems like a lot of the things I'm hearing are um, a, a big part of everyone buckling down and, and staying physically distant is so we don't overstress our medical facilities. So uh, do you have any idea how we're doing with that in Lexington and, and what, what our capacity is looking like relative to our need? And uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that again is what we're, we're trying to accomplish is when we people say, well, what's flattening the curve? That's what we're trying to do. So there's two things we're trying to do. We're trying to shift the curve so that the curve actually occurs later in time. And then we're trying to flattening, flatten the curve. The curve is simply the number of cases on the X axis or, or over the time, okay, which is the other axis. And if we can do that, then uh, we'll have the capacity to be able to, to take care of the sickest patients. And in some ways we're spreading out, we are spreading out potentially illness over a longer period of time, but we're doing that in order to be able to handle those who are sickest, because if everybody gets sick at the same time, that could potentially overwhelm the healthcare delivery system, um, and, and we wouldn't be able to have adequate treatment or care for those who are the sickest. Um, the other thing is that we, it's a new virus so that folks who are clinicians, doctors, are having to try to learn how to best take care of these sickest patients uh, in the hospital setting and they're trying different types of treatment modalities to see what's going to be effective. Um, and that's probably a whole other talk. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> so, um... You said you've been communicating with all these different stakeholders, and I'm not sure uh, you know where the decisions always get made. But you you said that you've been dealing with the state. Uh, can you kind of talk about that relationship and and kind of who's driving the boat on on day to day decisions and how that relationship works? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, often we uh, get some of our uh, guidance from both the state health department and the federal level, which in our case is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC. Mm -hmm. And they are looking at the, uh, the research that's going on, what is available and the data that's going on. And prior to, you know, five six weeks ago, we were mainly looking at data from other countries. Right. What was their experience there? And then based on that, they're trying, CDC specifically is trying to produce um, best practice guidance that hospitals can follow, that businesses can follow, that churches and faith-based groups can follow. Um, and, and that gets updated on the CDC website on a, on a daily basis almost sometimes, um, depending on the science that's evolving here. So I think it's very important for us as we look to them. Um, and when we, when we speak, we need to have at least, uh, we need to have some authority from what the data are showing, what the science are showing um, on why we make recommendations that we make. 
Right, right. What what type of data are you interested in following uh, on? A yeah, day? so you're a data guy, right? For a living, yeah, yeah. You're kind of like an epidemiologist. Uh, <laughs> so you would make a great epidemiologist because we're all interested in data and and what it can tell us about practically about how we can stop or slow down. Uh, um, a pandemic like this. So I should go back first of all and say um, our goal is we know we can't stop a pandemic because everyone is susceptible but again our goal is to slow the pandemic down as much as or, or to delay illness as much as we possibly can and to that end we're looking at several data points of course we're looking at numbers of cases that always comes to mind first and people are looking at how fast are we developing new cases um, and how can we potentially um, how can we reduce the spread by case investigations that we do, identification of contacts, isolation and quarantine of people. Um, and that's very important in the containment phase. So when we have fewer cases, then more of our epidemiological uh, work goes into those areas. As time goes on, we can get into a mitigation phase. Right now we're kind of somewhere in between um, in that we're getting more cases, things like social distancing are, are very important, um, but we still think it's important to interview all of our cases and look at that data and see what that's telling us. We're looking also at the demographics of the cases that we get. So what's been interesting here in Lexington is, um, and this isn't out of bounds for what other cities and other parts of the country are seeing, but 25% of our cases are healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. um, that's an interesting observation and one that I think is important for us as a community when we think about how they're, they're the first line people who are seeing sick people. So it's not probably that surprising. On the other hand, we want to make sure they have the personal protective equipment they need to stay safe to, and also to keep from their patients and their coworkers from getting sick. Does that make sense? So yeah. that's going to, that's going to be, that is continues to be an emphasis for us. Another thing the data has shown us here in Lexington is that 30% of our cases are in African Americans and we, we have a population that's comprised of about 15% African Americans. So they are being disproportionately affected um, by the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're looking more into this particular subgroup. Um, and we could talk about some of the reasons why they may be more disproportionately affected than other communities within our larger community here in Lexington. Um, so we're looking at numbers. We're also looking at other things that, uh, that affect the ultimate outcome. And one of those that we've touched on is personal protective equipment. Mm -hmm. Need to figure out how we get more personal protective equipment because Supplies are finite now, okay, um, and that's one of the things that 
business leaders, for instance, have been working on is how do we change some of our manufacturing processes so that people, we can home grow in our own cottage industry here in, in Kentucky, more personal protective equipment, such as face shields, okay, face right. masks, okay, surgical masks, N95 respirators, these are worn by healthcare professionals, and they're actually sealed to the face, and that causes a tight seal that prevents particles from coming in, but they're really only effective for people who know how to wear them, who've been what we call fit tested. Um, and then gowns are part and gloves are part of that personal protective equipment too. So uh, when we have the entire country at the same time affected, you know, that makes it you know very difficult because these supplies are in, uh, they're hot items, right? They're in heavy demand. And we need them to be able to protect the healthcare workers who, taking, who are taking care of our sickest patients here in the Lexington community. So that's another data point that we're trying to follow is what is our supply? And not only can we get more, but can we get healthcare, um, healthcare entities? I think they've been doing a great job with this, by the way, but can we get them to conserve these in a reasonable way? So how do we safely or effectively reuse these products if we need to? And that they still, um, are uh, providing the, the the function of the protection that they that they should be. Um, right. That's another thing that that we're also looking at as we move along. We're looking too at um, some of the science that's coming out. Like when will we uh, have a vaccine? What are the models that are project? Pro projecting when we're going to have our peak. Will we have just one peak or will we have multiple peaks? Nobody really has answers to that. I mean, they, there are different models that predict that, but they're only as good as the factors that go into them. They can help us to plan as we go along, but I don't think we can hang our hats on them. Those are also things that we're looking at as well. And then we're looking at the ability to test. So um, it's difficult for us to know how many tests are being done in the community because uh, that's not something that's reportable to public health authorities is how many tests that um, providers are doing or who they're testing. We have some ballpark idea about how many tests are being done. They're still, however, not widely available. They're more widely available than they were five or six weeks ago, that's for sure, in the community. On the other hand, there are still certain criteria that most providers are using when they test, and that includes being symptomatic um, and uh, being in a high-risk group, like um, somebody who is elderly or somebody who has chronic disease. Those people are at higher risk for more severe illness with COVID-19. Another um, priority group for testing are people who are critical to our in health infrastructure, like healthcare workers or just our infrastructure in general, like first responders um, that we need on the job every single day. So those are the folks that have been prioritized for testing in the community. And up till now, when we've been saying that we don't have enough tests for everybody, we've asked people actually who've had mild illness to stay at home 
um, to take care of their illness just like they normally would with any other respiratory illness with fever reducers, with um, lots of fluids and plenty of rest. Um, and to not seek testing so that we can reserve the test for those who are at a higher priority. So, and that may change, that guidance may change as testing becomes more available. Right. Yeah. And, and so the, the testing is interesting and I think the availability is, is going to be so important uh, over the coming months as we think about trying to get back to normal life. And it feels like in the middle of April here, the, the discussions are becoming louder uh, about that tug of war between staying home and knuckling down to, to stop the spread and, and people having kind of long-term economic consequences. Yeah. So I'm not gonna put you on the spot and say, when do we open? What I wanna know from you as the health commissioner is, what are the things that people are going to need to see what infrastructure in place so we can feel comfortable starting to move towards uh, going back to normal? Yeah, so probably the first thing I would say is Cameron, I don't think, I think our new normal is gonna be adjusted expectations from right. was. I don't see our new normal being the same as it was in December of last year or January of this year. I see that our new normal is gonna be a little bit different. Um, and I also think that everybody's probably in agreement that as restrictions, if they get eased or as they get eased, it'll be phased and certainly not just, uh, we'll turn on a switch and say, okay, it's all clear for everybody to, <laughs> to do everything that they did before. Um, and I think your question is a good one and it's something that, you know, we as a society are gonna be wrestling with about, well, what are those trigger points um, and what needs to happen? But I would say that in general, some of the things that we need to talk, that we've been talking about um, are factors that are gonna be playing into that decision about uh, when these, when things open up more. And one of those things is the availability of testing so that people who are mildly ill can be tested so that um, we can know if they're sick. I think that's gonna be important for people um, going back to work in a setting um, where they could infect other people. Um, we're, if, if in an ideal situation, it would be great to have a standard test to be able to tell if someone's developed immunity to the virus. And right now, there are a bunch of these tests, and Katrina can talk about that as well because she's a lab geek. But there are a bunch of different places that have developed their own tests, but they haven't been standardized by the FDA in any way. So there might be different cutoff points, and we don't know, does this cutoff point mean that a person has immunity? What we think is that people after this virus, and again, it's a new virus, so we don't know for sure, but like other viruses, we're suspecting that once you have COVID-19, that you will develop long-lasting immunity. We don't know that for totally sure, but what we do know already is that people who have been infected are developing antibodies against, and, and have recovered, are developing antibodies against the virus. The question will be, how long do those antibodies persist that provide protection for us 
to prevent us from getting reinfected with the virus. So that's another factor that I think that we, you know, that we need to take into consideration. And probably a third factor is the amount of PPE. So if we're going to relax restrictions a little bit, um, then um, we might have to, we might have a resurgence of cases. So I think we have to be prepared for maybe some back and forth, as you said, tug of war, okay. Um, but we have to be prepared for other cases and we have to know that we have enough personal protective equipment in reserve so that we can protect healthcare workers if we do start seeing even higher levels because of something that we, a change that we made. So it appears right now, again, this is Friday, this is April 17th, and we're actually, you know, we're cautiously optimistic about the numbers here in Lexington, but everybody, the other counties in the state are even at different places than we are in the pandemic. And we've been seeing in the last week or so a decreased trajectory in the in the numbers that we're getting here in Lexington. Um, we're hoping, again, that's due to social distancing, um, but is it time for us to, you know, take our uh, foot off the brakes? It's very hard. We understand how hard it is and the sacrifices that our businesses community have made, that people have made personally. We understand the effect that it's had on the economy. It's all to the final um, goal of saving more lives um, in, in the community. Right. And, and you all have such an important job, uh, kind of being a leader in that uh, you know, ongoing struggle. And I really appreciate your time kind of educating us today and, and giving us kind of a understanding of where we are and some best practices. So if you had kind of one overarching message for, for people in Lexington and Fayette County right now, what, what would that be? I think it's, uh, you've been doing a good job, Lexington, on your physical distancing. And please continue to do your part to physical distance as we said before, I think that it's going to be just as important now as it was in the past. And even when we move into our new normals, I would say that for some time to come until vaccines get developed or treatments get put in place, that social distancing and good hand washing uh, are going to be regular parts of our routine. Right, right. Yeah, it's such a great message. And Dr. Uh, Craig Humbaugh, uh, Health Commissioner in, in Fayette County, I so much uh, appreciate your time and, and thanks for all you're doing and the, and the long days you're putting in. Uh, we, we all appreciate, uh, appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Cameron. We appreciate you and thanks for helping us get the word out. Again, thanks to Dr. Craig Humbaugh, the Commissioner of Health at our Lexington Fayette County Health Department and his colleague, Katrina Howard, for facilitating our call. We also have a second segment today. I want to take a moment to give you, our audience, some background on this interview. This podcast is produced by a volunteer group that since last fall had been planning to launch a new civic holiday called the Lexington Day of Service. Our goal was to coordinate a day of volunteerism on which our citizens would pitch in at nonprofits all over town. Unfortunately, that early May 8 event has been put on hold uh, for the foreseeable future, but we still have uh, made these great connections with worthy nonprofit organizations who need our help now 
uh, more than ever. So we'll, we're, we plan on using this platform to highlight these great groups, uh, let you know what they're up to and how you can help their causes during this uncertain time. Today, my friend Stephanie Little is highlighting Greenhouse 17, a local advocacy agency committed to ending intimate partner abuse in families and our community. Take it away, Stephanie. Hi everyone, this is Stephanie Little. I'm a financial advisor here in Lexington and Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm a member of Leadership Lexington this year. Today, I have a special guest with me. I've got Darlene Thomas. She is the executive director of Greenhouse 17, which is a nonprofit here in Kentucky. Darlene, thank you for being here. Oh, I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So I want to start today. I want you to tell us a little bit about um, Greenhouse 17 and what your mission is. So Greenhouse 17's mission is to keep families safe throughout Central Kentucky from intimate partner violence uh, and provide a whole host of services, kind of wraparound services, to help families move from crisis when things are really bad in the, in the family system and then to self-sufficiency. So we do that in a whole, uh, with a comprehensive list of services that are provided to survivors of intimate partner violence, including shelter. So we have a 40-acre uh, farm uh, and a 42-bed facility where we help families that have to immediately flee uh, in order to be safe. And so we provide safety, but then a lot of services on site. We also go to all the court systems for people who filed a protective order. We also provide support groups and counseling and uh, case management and all kinds of services for people throughout our 17 county central Kentucky area. So it depends on individual needs, on um, how our services are best uh, able to support survivors on their journey. Right. And um, I looked at your website, and the first thing I was very impressed by is it is wraparound, and it's very individualized. You know, there's a lot of services on there in a wide range of services, which I feel like is so important for somebody who is going through something like this to have the complete wraparound help that they need. And also that you all can be so individualized of if this is the specific thing you need help with, we can help you with this one specific area. And then if more needs arise, you guys are set up and ready to help with anything else that might arise. And I think that's really, really smart and innovative and really wonderful that you guys are set up um, that way. Well, thank you. Well, people, people can't have cookie cutter approaches. Everybody has a unique set of circumstances, even around a common cause. And so right. we feel it's our job to meet that uh, based on individual needs. Absolutely. And will you talk a little bit about um, the farm that you guys have there and some of the products that are made by some people who are staying at your shelters? Yeah, we're very um, fortunate and proud of some of our industries that we started over the last probably seven years now um, that we've been working on these adventures, we call them. However, uh, we, we've done two things. We have a flower industry, which is community supported agriculture. And people can buy a share of flowers. So we, we grow on the farm with survivor support. We're the, uh, we pay our family stipends who are, and right now many of them are part of a UK research study about the impact of the farm. But So we pay stipends because economic justice is a big issue too. You've just left a, you know, a serious situation and you, you need to feel like you belong to something a little bit bigger than yourself. So the farm is beautiful. We grow these native flowers and then uh, they harvest those flowers and they put them in beautiful bouquets. And the community is engaged by buying a share of flowers 
and you can buy a whole share or a half share or a quarter share. But once you do that, then we deliver flowers to different sites in, in Lexington right now. And then also we, we can do home deliveries. Uh, and wow. we're, we're, we sell about 150 shares. So if people are interested in that, they need to jump on it quick because we're getting close to being sold out for this season. So we limit and what we can do so survivors feel successful. Uh, and right. they know they're meeting needs and demands with these beautiful flowers that are delivered to the community. I think that's so wonderful. And if somebody was interested in um, the CSA shares, how would they go about signing up for that? Is it on your website or do they need to call? Website's the best way, but if you call, we will direct you to the right, uh, you know, the right person to help follow through and make sure. And then we also, one of the survivors felt that we should make body products. It was a lot of years ago. We started doing our homework about what that would look like. And uh, so it was very much survivor driven. Uh, and that whole product line is extremely um, survivor driven in the sense that they help create the products, the, uh, the smells, the fragrances, the, uh, they help create the quality of each of those products and then they right. label and market uh, the products and they send them out. So we make amazing soaps and lip balms and um, like body products. You can find those on our online as well uh, at greenhouse17.org. It's a great way to support survivors. All of the money from the farm, the cottage industries go back to help survivors become self-sufficient. So, um, and it's a great model for people to feel like they belong to something. And I would like to add, I think what I love the community to understand more than anything um, is that survivors need to be celebrated for their courage uh, and their, their will to forge a new path and Absolutely. try to do that safely as possible. And so we need to really celebrate them and see them not as uh, victims, but truly as survivors who bring a whole lot more to our community than have yes. been a victim, right? Um, Absolutely. So it's our way and to I, celebrate them. Yeah, and I love that um, you all have found a way to provide some purpose when they're in that really difficult, you know, change is hard for anybody. And when you're in a difficult transition and a scary transition, you guys have provided a way for them to have something that feels fulfilling and feels like they have a purpose and that they can produce a product. And I think that's wonderful. And I think that's really, really important. Um, and just as a reminder for anybody that's listening, she said you can go out to the website and buy those products, whether it's the CSA share and the flowers um, or the body products that they, um, that they make there. So that's wonderful. I think that's such a smart design. And I would encourage everybody to go look into that, especially I feel like right now everybody needs soap and it's hard to find. And I think there are some soap products out there. If, if people need soap products, it's a good way to get them right now and give back. And you can't go to the store anyway, so for the most part. So you can just order and have yes, a lot of right retail. Now. But, you know, we do, we do have some retail spaces throughout our communities and counties. And that's also listed on our, on our um website of all the places you can get our products but mainly people order online as well so we would Wonderful. love to have that support absolutely so can you tell me a little bit about how you all have been impacted by COVID-19 including like limitations to volunteers and changes to donations during this time like how has it impacted Greenhouse 17? Uh, yes yes and yes everything you just mentioned we've had an impact with so you know we have to think about how do you help survivors who right now um, 
are maybe trapped in a abusive situation more than ever with COVID-19 and not having access to external um, influences, right? It's, it's harder to reach out to people or get help, ask for help. Things that typically would have exposed survivors to um, be able to have access to people to check on them and do for them, uh, make sure things are okay or not there right now, like colleagues or going to church or kids right. in sports or things that always were kind of an outlet for survivors to navigate um, what's happening in their homes is kind of stopped. And so trying to uh, have figure out ways to get access to them and help the community understand that we're kind of really all in this together. Not to sound right. easy at all, but we are. We need to check on each other safely with awareness. Um, so that's one way I think the impact of our services, I think we're gonna be see a huge increase uh, right. in a need for our help as soon as these restrictions start to lift and, and victims get access again, our survivors uh, may be able to reach out for help. Currently though, we've also had to spread out amongst four different kind of spaces and locations confidentially. So I have some in shelter. I have teams were broken to three so that we're all safe. So you're, you're working pretty intensely for five days and then you're working for, from home for another 10 so that I know people are safe and well. Um, right. So we're bare bones staff uh, trying to call people every day and doing things more over the phone with survivors right. or uh, FaceTime or, you know, different types of communications with them. We're still going to courts where courts are allowing, um, are still holding courts. Some of our counties have done remote, but we're still doing the work. So we're still doing the court work. We're still doing the shelter. Uh, it just looks differently, which means we're spread out and, um, but we're trying to keep survivors isolated with support <laughs> all at the same right. time. So, you know, financially, that's a huge impact. There was nothing in my budget to have 30 hotel rooms for a month or more. Um, right. That was not budgeted anywhere. So working right. with community and, uh, and it's hard to do our fundraising the typical way that we would, right? We, we had to yeah. cancel or pro postpone at least, uh, LunaFest is something we do every year in May. Well, we're not going to get to do that. So all of those things cut into the revenue and the resources that we need to, to meet the need right now. Right. And that's um, something that somebody else from another nonprofit had mentioned was that it's like the, the typical sources of revenue, you know, the fundraisers and, you know, donations and are kind of drying up a little bit because you can't do the fundraisers. And I think some people don't have the money to make the donations maybe they were making before. And then the expenses are almost going up because the need is still there. And in fact, in your situation, it sounds to me like the need is probably going to increase. Um, and you're probably going to have more survivors that need help. Um, so it's a really tricky situation. And it definitely is. a reason I wanted to have you on the podcast today is I wanted to have a chance for people to hear, you know, what really is going on and how it's impacting you all. And you sort of already alluded to this, but I just want to um, go ahead and mention this as well, that you guys are still open. You are still serving the community during this time. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell people if they do need help or they do need um, some resources from you all, how do they get that help? Right. Yes, you can call us. You can also go through our website. We have a Facebook page. A lot of people access the, us through Facebook so that we can reach out. So right. every survivor knows their own situation. Um, uh, but if, at all possible a phone call a confidential phone call you don't have to give us anything except for what your goals are what uh, you need and we'll help you navigate safety planning for every single 
survivor. Um, everything, it looks different. Each person looks so unique. So that's one, that's the way, the best way I think for people to reach out to us, uh, or right. go through those avenues, or if they can get to family and friends, family and friends can reach out to us to find out what they can do, how they can support. Uh, we just put on our Facebook page, how you help people during COVID-19 who may be trapped at home. Uh, we did that in collaboration with our domestic violence sexual assault prevention board in Fayette County. So, uh, that can be a nice guide or, or tool to use for the general community. Um, yeah. And then probably the most important question for me is for those of us who maybe are fortunate enough to help out in this time, or are there even ways new people who might be economically struggling a little bit to help you all? And what is your biggest need right now? So I think I want to acknowledge that the community, this is just uncertain times for all of us. And we've had a tremendous amount of community support, which may not be quite as possible right now. People are uncertain. They're uncertain of their own financial futures or what's happening and when they're going to go back to work. So we are blessed and grateful for what we've had. And we know that that will continue once people are able to get back to whatever the new normal is going to look like for us in our communities. Uh, but for those that might be able to help or do you know, things on our website, we have a needs list that's updated all the time. And it was beautiful. Like I have people trying to move out. I'm trying to get people out of the hotel back into an apartment because if I can get them stabilized and safe in their own apartment right now, but then they have needs to do that. So yesterday we received a set of dishes from Amazon. So we have a huge list on Amazon, Amazon smile. So when you, when you buy something, whether I got four sets of pillows yesterday from donors, which aren't super expensive at all, but it's their way of giving back. So it doesn't take a lot that helps us because we are in need of always of those things, pillows, blankets, but our needs list is what I would send everybody to. Just go to our website, greenhouse17.org. It has a needs list of exactly what we need to help families become self-sufficient or help us provide our services. Uh, and right now we're really, you know, good with food. We've had donors buying bread from us from Sunrise Bakery every week. And we've had, you know, uh, donors bringing us food, different churches, different organizations, so that I can make quick, uh, you know, uh, food baskets and get them up to all the hotels, continue to feed people. So, you know, we're getting a lot of support, uh, but if you want to know, you can call us too, and maybe whatever you have to offer might be something we need. So just ask. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the idea of checking out the needs list that you have on your website, because I think sometimes people you know, want to, you know, want to give something, but they're not sure exactly what you need and they can do it through Amazon if they, you know, don't feel comfortable going to the store and they can have it shipped directly to you. So I think that's a really good idea. I also saw online that there's a way to do Kroger rewards where you guys get a portion of that. Is that correct? That is correct. So, you know, Kroger is the one place we're all still able to, to shop uh, uh, just a handful. So if you're not connected to a Kroger reward, of any kind. Um, if you go on Kroger and do your, your little card, um, you can name Greenhouse 17 as the recipient um, of money. So it doesn't cost you anything. You go grocery shopping and then they send us a quarterly check for people that had this listed as their charity of choice. That's wonderful. And that might be a way for anybody that you know, maybe feeling a little um, financially insecure right now, but they still have to go buy groceries. It might be a way that they could give back um, and like you said, it doesn't cost them anything. It's the groceries they have to buy anyway. So I feel like that's a really good idea. Yes. I, people love that, actually. It, it is a way that they feel like they're helping 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's a very easy, painless way to help. So I love that idea. And I'm glad that you guys are signed up for that. Well, Darlene, that is everything that I had for you today. I appreciate your time so much. I appreciate what you all are doing so much. And thank you for passing along all this information. It's been fantastic. Well, we at Greenhouse 17 and the survivors and our staff are just want to say thank you to this community because it is a blessing to be a part of Central Kentucky. I just have to say it's how people step up and help. is just incredible. And we just want to say thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you all as well. And I appreciate your time. Have a good rest of your week. Thank you. You too.